Welcome to the Nature Walk Podcast by Vagabond Naturalists. My name is Tim, and this is Episode 3. This story is from January 2015, and it tells a little bit about our Vagabond beginnings. was an offhand comment, a smart-ass joke. Somewhere on Highway 50 in the heart of Nevada, on our way to a river trip in Utah, Rachel and I had turned to our favorite subject, the five-year plan to get out of San Francisco and be closer to wild things. We love the Bay Area and the irreplaceable community of friends we're part of, but cities have their limitations, and a new location that met a perfect triangulation for both of our needs wasn't presenting itself, so in mock exasperation, I blurted out, maybe we should just quit our jobs and travel the country for a year. A thoughtful silence filled the car, and we continued down the road to Moab. Returning west from an unforgettable float on the Green River, we were once again in Nevada, this time somewhere on State Route 375, the extraterrestrial highway when Rachel pulled out a notebook and began sketching out a surprisingly well-thought-out and revised one-year plan that cashed in our modest resources and cut our anchors. Apparently I hadn't realized that while I was enjoying the waning months of my 17-year bike messenger career, she'd had plenty of time working late hours in a downtown cubicle to dream up escape fantasies. I was game if somewhat startled by this unexpected enthusiasm for vagabonding but I threw in the suggestion to continue our conservation volunteering that we'd been doing at home while we were exploring the American landscape. Nowhere in that seemingly well-thought-out plan had we foreseen that 15 months later, we'd be sitting in the now-familiar cab of the cutest vintage 1978 Toyota RV, recently disabled and strapped to the flatbed of a large tow truck bouncing down the ruralist of farm roads in northern Louisiana. We had put our faith in the fact that Lloyd and his assistant Darren knew what they were doing, but they were large fellows, and after exchanging some awkward glances, The obvious answer was that the four of us were not going to fit into the cab of their truck. Rachel and I took our usual seats, except that now we had to climb an extra five feet upwards to get in. We were only a couple months into our new life on the road, but I had put plenty of hours and scuffed all my knuckles, doing what I could to keep our 18-foot home-on-wheels, now dubbed Little Squatch, running. My high school auto shop knowledge is only slightly less vintage than our little four-cylinder engine, and it's probably important to mention that I lived almost two decades of urban life without the headache of owning a car. The list of mishaps on our travels to this point had included oil cooler hoses catastrophically popping off, twice, a poorly tuned carburetor causing the muffler to blow, twice, a worn clutch needing replacement, and two tires sacrificed to a finicky alignment. This was on top of the home improvements necessary to make our plywood and aluminum house livable. Installing our own simple solar power, swapping in a composting toilet, 
a significant volume of caulk, and quite a few yards of duct tape, bailing wire, and zip ties. It might be hard to understand our attachment, but if you met him, you'd see that little Squatch's charm is undeniable. But he can also be a stressful travel companion. Rachel had magnanimously tolerated my obsessive need to do all the driving. I had earned a symbiotic relationship with our vehicle and was sensitive to all the changes in sound and vibration that affected our collective happiness on the road. I definitely misdiagnosed our current problem. I had been wondering, is that new knocking the vowels? Does he just need the timing adjusted? En route to an ancient mound culture site called Poverty Point on a patched and potholed back road, a sudden high-pitched metallic screeching answered the question. A seized water pump insisted that we not continue. The only reason we'd chosen this obscure route was that we'd had some extra time to fill before heading to the Gulf Coast for a habitat restoration project that Rachel had signed us up for. Now we weren't sure we were getting anywhere soon. There seemed to be some irony in our proximity to a place called Poverty Point. At least the tow truck dispatcher seemed to think so as he chuckled unsympathetically. The long wait gave us time to ponder the mystery of a culture that moved massive amounts of soil to raise structures and give some topographical relief above the otherwise flat Mississippi floodplain, all this beginning a millennium before the pyramids of Egypt. For centuries, these cultures, which we know precious little about, farmed and built hundreds of cities from the Gulf Coast to the Great Lakes. The same landscape that fostered an enigmatic and now long-vanished civilization remains fecund, a rich bottomland with deep soil laid down by thousands of years of repetitive flooding. The arrival of the local mechanic brought us back to more immediate concerns. Loaded aboard, we had a bird's-eye view of the surrounding countryside, but Lloyd was taking some of the corners pretty fast, and I found my hands reaching for the locked steering wheel and my foot searching for the non-functioning brakes. I suggested to Rachel that we put our seatbelts on. Forget your preconceptions or slasher movie tropes. The best places to break down in an old car are the small, no-nonsense rural towns. Back at his shop in the town of Tallulah, Lloyd and his quiet and unconcerned southern drawl got on the phone and had a new water pump on the way, and by the next morning we were rolling after spending a fraction of what our East Bay shop would need to charge. little guy patched up, Rachel and I had an engagement to get to on the tenuous southern edge of Louisiana. I suppose after walking among the remnants of mysterious earthworks, my eyes had become as sensitive to the altered shapes of the landscape. However, it would have been hard to miss the massive plumbing that the Army Corps of Engineers and others have created in this flood-prone environment and it was startling in contrast. Moving south along the Mississippi, you can find yourself on a high road atop a berm that extends hundreds of miles in an attempt to keep this workhorse of a river just where we want it. Then upon descending the levees, we found ourselves skirting back basins and crossing the channels, dams, and locks of a vast system of flood control and navigation infrastructure. This monumental yoking of nature was exactly why we found ourselves at the once expanding foot of the continent. It is likely we are asking too much of these waters. Our mixed purposes of large-scale transportation and protecting fertile and populated farmland 
have stifled the regenerative system that brought this abundance to the region. The river system wants to spill out chaotically. It needs to. Those silt-laden waters of the Big Muddy created half the state over the past few thousand years. Today, Louisiana loses two football fields an hour. The causes of this loss are multifaceted, but it is clear that human activity is a major culprit. Those sediment-rich Mississippi waters are flushed out to the deep gulf through the channelized waterway. A vast number of channels for the oil and gas industry have created saltwater intrusion pathways that spread erosion. Even an invasive South American rodent called Nutria, brought here to produce furs, have exploded in numbers consuming large amounts of vegetation that would otherwise contribute to soil buildup. This ethereal Gulf Coast edge of sandy barrier islands and once sprawling marshland is also what protects the region from hurricanes and their storm surges, so lots of players have a stake in this. Fishermen, lowland farmers, coastal dwellers, and even the shipping and petroleum industries see the value in regenerating this natural buffer. Projected sea level rise only makes this more urgent. This is how we found ourselves lucky enough to spend a cold, windy day getting knee-deep in boot-swallowing mud with a motley bunch of people. At the Port Frashan Marina, we piled into a harbor boat and wound our way past dry-docked oil platforms and the massive flatbed ships that haul and service them. It was a true coalition. Our crew included urban greenies out of New Orleans and her suburbs, college biology majors, and locals whose livelihoods were tied to the various parts of the extraction industry. Volunteers are not only trying to put a dent in the loss of these wetlands, but we also hope that by studying this work, we will learn how to do it most effectively. 48 hours earlier, Rachel and I were wondering if dragging an aged novelty of a proto-tiny house across the continent in order to learn about the land and get our hands dirty on local conservation efforts had been a bad idea. Sharing some laughs and sweat on a blustery day with this diverse group of folks confirmed that it might be the only way to know a place. As I dragged a hundred-pound sled loaded with mangrove and cordgrass along an old backfilled pipeline channel, I also couldn't help feeling some connection to the long-lost people who piled baskets full by the millions into elaborate and mysterious mounds. Thanks for listening. The music is A Stranger's Map of Texas by Michael Chapman and the Woodpiles. And you can learn more about us or support our endeavors at vagabondnaturalist.com.